Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Before we begin, we have an announcement. Joe Lockhart has joined us several times over the last few weeks, and after every episode, our listeners wanted to hear more. So we listened to your emails, your tweets, your Facebook and Instagram DMs, and we were able to convince Joe to join us as our partner and full-time co-host. Joe, we're thrilled to officially welcome you to Words Matter. Thank you. I'm uh, thrilled to be here. It's been a lot of fun being on with you guys for the last couple weeks. You know, it is a great platform already. I was a uh, listener before coming on as a guest. And, I, you know, I do want to uh, make note and pay homage to what Steve and Elise started here. Mm. Um, you know, I know Steve pretty well from politics. You run into the party opposite from time to time at conferences and things. And he was a guy who I instantly liked. I met him probably 10 years ago at Tulane University at a conference. And Elise, I just know from watching on TV, I had never met her, but they have the same quality uh, and the quality that is important to me, which is the truth matters to them. You know, you can get into back and forth and, the, you know, the spinning that is inevitable and important in politics, but understanding what the truth is and being staying true to it is a value that I hold dear. And uh, it's something that I think Stephen Elise elevated in this debate on this platform. And so it's just an honor to continue on with that. That's wonderful. I'm glad you said that. I agree. My mother always taught me it's good to be grateful for where you came from. And I'm certainly grateful to be sitting in a chair that Elise made professional and intelligent and fun to listen to. So I'm looking forward to going moving forward. All right. So last week, you had a column on CNN.com, and it was called Republicans and Democrats are all mixed up on Mueller where you write about the political strategy or what should be the political strategy behind the public release of the report. And you cite the example of the Star Report and the political lessons from the 1998 midterms to say, quote, purely as a matter of politics, the Republicans should be all for releasing the report and the Democrats should put up a fight, but a fight they actually want to lose. So how did the 1998 midterms, how are they a relevant example? Everybody knows the phrase, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. I, I really believe that most things in politics can be forgiven. But what the public won't forgive is when you are hiding something from them. And right now we're in a political situation where the Republicans uh, are pursuing a strategy where they're pretending they're for releasing the report, but doing everything they can to not have the report released. I mean, they could... Uh, you know, pass legislation, you know, saying that it has to be released. They could, the Senate could take it up. They're not going to. And from a political standpoint, I, it's, you know, it's my opinion that once the report comes out, people have a way of digesting it and saying and putting it in perspective. What's really scary to people is what they don't know. And what they don't know now is what's in the report. Now, I don't know what's in the report. So, you know, you, you, you're making communication, giving communications advice based on an unknown is a is a pretty scary proposition. Right. Look at 1998, for example. There was an enormous amount of attention um, in the lead up to the delivery and uh, publication of the Star Report. 
Everyone wanted to know what happened. The report came out. It was a very painful day, couple of days, because all of the sordid details were put out there. And then something happened. People moved on. They started looking at other issues. They started talking about other things. Now, we had a six-month political process. There was House impeachment hearings, House impeachment vote, Senate trial, and acquittal. But the attention that was given to that, you know, the cable news coverage, breaking in live to the networks, that all calmed down a little bit after the report was out. And if you just look at the numbers, the day the Star report was made public, President Clinton's approval rating was 63%. The day he was impeached, three months later, it was 73%, the highest point it ever got to during his administration. And the point is that it was this sense of mystery and drama of what don't we know, what don't we know, which I think in politics is just as powerful and at times more powerful than what we do know. I think the public is understanding and forgiving uh, in this country. I don't think anyone looks at Donald Trump as a perfect human being. So I don't know that there's going to be something in the report that the public says, now I can't possibly vote for him. It'll just be one factor. Um, and I think, you know, put simply, they should just rip the Band-Aid off and try to get this thing out and move on. They're pursuing a strategy on multiple fronts, not just the, the Mueller report, but taxes, some of the things in the oversight area that almost guarantee that this goes into next year, that it goes into the year he's seeking reelection. And if the Democrats play it right, that will be a, uh, you know, a big positive for them. They could overplay it. You could see a repeat of 1998 of overreaching. But um, I just don't understand their strategy now. Now, one of the key differences between Starr and Mueller is that Starr was appointed by a judge and his process was to submit the report through that. And Mueller was under the special counsel reg submitting a confidential report to the attorney general. So there wasn't at that time a, a period where the attorney general would review the report for certain you know, grand jury investigation for sensitive uh, sensitive information related to the intelligence community and the like. Did you and your team at the White House go through a, kind of a correlative process where you took time to review the report before it became public? It's an interesting story because there was some consultation uh, that went on between the independent counsel's office and people who were involved in this case, but no one saw the whole report. People were given, you know, you're in this report saying this. Is that accurate? Um, before so, it was public. Before it was public. <clears throat> but the first time that we saw the report, you know, maybe there was a lawyer who got a copy under the table, but I don't think so, was when it was released to the public. We had a, a very spirited debate between the political people and the um, the lawyers leading up to that because, you know, my point is one of the political people is we can't just have this report go out and have to read, you know, however many hundred pages, you know, it'll be two days later, we will have lost. And the lawyer's point, which, which was valid, is, you know, David Kendall, who was the lead lawyer from Williams and Connolly, made the point, I don't want to be fighting a ghost. He said, lawyers never want to write 10 pages about something you're not actually charged with, because it looks like you should have been charged with that. Absolutely. Um, so it, it was a, a very principled, but uh, a very spirited uh, debate. About a day before uh, the report was uh, scheduled to be released, the lawyers came in and said, you know, we've been thinking about this and we agree that we do need something. 
and they had, because lawyers do this, they had already prepared something. They said to Paul Bagawa and myself, read this thing and then give us like a five to 10 page executive summary. So Paul and I stayed up very late that night and did that and just took their work. So rather than read the report and respond to it, we issued our report, I think a little bit before the Star Report came out or simultaneously. And that was our answer. We were able to, I think we were able to fight that day on the law and the politics uh, on an equal basis. Um, the most compelling thing in the report were the details. There were nothing we could do about that. People wanted to know about the sex. And that's where everybody went to first. People who tell you that they started on the front page are lying. They went to that section. They read it. But as we got past that, our arguments stood side by side with the independent counsel. So compare that to now then. So the, the Star Report contained these salacious sexual details and were, was primarily about the president's personal conduct. And Mueller's report, though nobody has seen it um, outside of the Justice Department, presumably involves a whole different bale of hay, right? I mean, we're talking about a counterintelligence investigation here and sensitive information related to intelligence communities and, and collection and methods. And so does that change the political calculus, this go around? Of course. It's, it's a different situation. I think the things, particularly in the counterintelligence realm, present a uh, clear and present danger to our country. President Clinton's uh, mistakes did not. Uh, you know, there was no sense that there was someone who could compromise uh, our national security because of the mistakes he made. Uh, so you have that element of that. Uh, but you also have, you know, decisions that the president made, you know, while he was president. And, and I think those there's some similarity here on the whole obstruction of justice uh, issue. People have to make a judgment. Some people have already made a judgment. Some people have said it's not for me to make that judgment. Um, we'll see when we see the report, you know, what the evidence is. But this does go to the president's behavior um, as opposed to the underlying threat to uh, the country. It does um, go off on a tangent just for a second here. We love your tangent. Yes. <laughs> I keep talking about mistakes that the uh, the president and his communication teams made. Here's the single biggest one. Rather than come out on the day of the, the bar letter and scream full exoneration, like, this is all about me. It's all about me. No one else matters but me. He should have come out and focused on Russia attacking the U.S., he should have been ready that day with a new set of sanctions saying, thank you, Bob Mueller, for looking at this and getting to the bottom of this. Vladimir Putin lied to me. He's going to pay a price for lying to me because my most important job is to protect this country. Instead, he did the opposite. He said, the most important job I have is to promote me and to exonerate me. Um, and I think th they made a series of mistakes. That was the biggest one. So the danger of overreaching for the Democrats here seems pretty clear. What do you think the real downside is for Republicans? This sort of lockstep staying with the president. We will get over this affliction of me going, bringing everything back to 1998, but I'm not over it yet. <laughs> it's relevant. Yeah. The Democrats during this time didn't stand up every day and hold a pep rally for the president. One of the most searing days for me in all of this was when Joel Lieberman announced he was going to go to the floor and give a speech. And we didn't know what he was going to say. And he wouldn't tell us what he was going to say. 
And there was a very real possibility that a senior Democrat was going to call on the president to resign. Well, he didn't say that. He said the president had behaved abhorrently and should be censured, which at that point the president agreed with. With these Republicans, you don't even have that. There was not a single Republican who came out uh, over that first weekend and said, the real enemy here is Russia, not Bob Mueller, not Democrats, not, you know, whatever the political... And, you know, they are so cowed right now by the way Trump has re-engineered the Republican electorate that they've become impotent. The danger is the public is going to look at Donald Trump and say, well, not only do we not think you're fit for office anymore, we don't think your followers uh, are either. And, you know, they might even decide, well, we like Trump because he does all these things and he's unconventional, but he gets stuff done. But all these guys, what what are they for beyond saying, you know, how great Trump is? So there's not equal risk. There's less risk when you're in the minority. So I would say there's very little risk for a House Republican right now. And there's a lot of risk for House Democrats. And I'd reverse it in the Senate, which is for Senate Republicans, there is risk. Senate Democrats, there's not. Power brings responsibility. And that in and of itself means you have political risk. So let's apply that to 2020 then. Isn't it easier for Republicans in the House and the Senate running for re-election to just memorize the phrase, no collusion, no obstruction, than to have to worry about all of the details that may or may not become public in the report? Uh, It's a very effective strategy if there is no collusion and there's no obstruction. And until we know, we don't know. That's a problem. It, It goes to the heart of you know, any sort of communications or political strategy. You know, I wrote a piece recently where I compared the the bar uh, letter and the reaction to Mission Accomplished and George W. Bush, because here's what happened, which is when you declare total unambiguous victory, any small defeat becomes a huge defeat because you declared unambiguous victory. And my guess is, I don't know what we're going to see in the report. I haven't read the report. But my guess is we're going to see things in there that don't say total exoneration of the president. This was all crazy. This was all a witch hunt. There's nothing to see here. I think there'll be some things to see. And rather than judging it from a perspective of it wasn't as bad as these other things, it wasn't what some Democrats said it was, we're now going to judge it against total exoneration. From the president's words, right? The president said no collusion, no obstruction. Right. Barr's letter did say, you know, the report does not exonerate him. Exactly. And and I I think Barr covered himself there. I can't even begin to get into his motives because I don't know what they are Uh, and what he was doing because what he thought was right or what he thought he was doing for the president or what he thought he was doing for the Department of Justice. I just don't know. But where you started the question was, should Republicans just go out and say total exoneration, no, you know, and no collusion, no obstruction of justice? And my guess is that's a pretty bad strategy because it's so easy to poke holes in that. In some ways, collusion's easier uh, because I think it's a little more cut and dry. I, I, I have no reason not to believe uh, Barr when he said that Bob Mueller did not find a chargeable offense, you know, on collusion. But if I'm a Democratic ad maker and I'm running against a Republican in some district who's screaming no collusion and I put up a picture of that meeting in Trump Tower with the Russians, 
I think I could create a little doubt about what collusion is. You sound like a lawyer more than an actor. Yeah, well, there. there's, there's a little doubt in front of a jury. Yeah, there's a little crossover here. It's, uh, it's you know, if if we could think of a nice voir dire uh, Latin word for elections, we sure. yeah, we'll see what we'll see what standard the American electorate wants to apply yeah. beyond a reasonable doubt or preponderance yeah. of the evidence. So there seems to be a split among Democrats on how aggressively to pursue a subpoena of the Mueller report and oversight in general. So as of last week, while the House Judiciary Committee voted 24-17 along party lines to authorize subpoenas for Mueller's report, Chairman Jerry Nadler had not yet issued them. Is Chairman Nadler taking your advice? Well, I think uh, Chairman Nadler is taking his chief counsel's advice here. And I'm going to admit up front, I did not go to law school, but I watch a lot of cable TV, so I know the law. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. In fact, it's cheaper. Uh, it's it's a lot cheaper. The, my understanding from talking to and watching some of the legal experts is that a way you can fight a subpoena is, uh, and an effective way to fight a subpoena is if you didn't go to every length to get the information some other way. So I think that getting the authorization and then going back to Barr and the Justice Department and saying, okay, let's have another conversation about this, How, what accommodation can we reach, is all about um, setting up an almost inevitable legal fight. Uh, and if they just you know, drop the subpoenas, I think the Department of Justice could rightly come back and say they didn't use every opportunity available to themselves. So I think that's a legal decision rather than a political decision. Well, we'll see what happens before the next episode of Words Matter. But I think the bottom line for right now is everyone should just hurry up and wait. Well, someone uh, sent me an email earlier today and saying, uh, I'm asking a whole bunch of people, how are you going to read the Mueller report when it comes out? You know, are you going to like go to the back and see if you're mentioned? Are you just going to watch TV? And I answered honestly. I just said, I'm going to get a lawn chair and I'm going to get a cooler beer. I'm going to go sit at the bottom of Ken Starr's driveway and read it. <laughs> and take some trash out while you're... while you're Well, you know, he takes the trash out, but yeah. that's, you know, I'm sure we'll have a chance to chat. <laughs> that's good. All right. So uh, moving on to the next topic, talking about the president's tax returns. So talking about House committees, also last week, Ways and Means Chairman Richard Neal, using a little-known provision in the federal tax code from 1924, I believe, uh, formally requested that the IRS hand over six years of the president's personal and business tax returns. So does the same political calculation that applies to the Mueller report apply to Donald Trump's taxes here? I think it's slightly more risky for Democrats on the taxes than the Mueller report. The polls will tell you that, uh, you know, there's there was one poll that had 80 percent of Republicans wanting the Mueller report released. I don't think you'd find 80 percent of Republicans wanting the taxes released. But the numbers are, you know, they're very positive in terms of the public thinks he should supply uh, the taxes. But I think there's because there's more risk, there was um, it, it was imperative that they went about this carefully. And I actually think Chairman Neal did this exactly right. He was under a lot of pressure to, on day one, you know, go issue a subpoena, go after it. And he had a bunch of lawyers build what I think is a really strong case. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but I watch a lot of cable TV. Um, and it's not as expansive as people thought. And it's, you know, if you if you read this very narrow paragraph in the law, it's pretty straightforward that they have the right uh, to see them. So I think the public uh, wants to see them. 
It's a little bit like the Star Report. If the Star Report was sex porn, this is financial porn. Everybody wants to know. <laughs> Everybody wants to know. Is the guy rich? Is he not really rich? Does he pay his taxes? Does he not pay his taxes? And boy, you know, with all of these things going on in SDNY, what clues can we get? So um, I think it is riskier um, than the Mueller report, which I think has no risk really for Democrats. But I think to date they that uh, Chairman Neal has, has done it right. I'm glad it's Chairman Neal and not one of the more hot-headed uh, members you know, who might have gone off and screwed this up. Well, it's interesting that it is Chairman Neal who himself has not released his tax returns, but he is asking for six years. And my understanding is that he's asking for six years because the IRS recommendation is that you keep tax records for six years. But he's also doing it under the auspice of looking at what the IRS does or what the process is of auditing a president in office. His reason for doing it, so he says, is to see how auditing a president goes, basically. So I just questioned maybe the six years since the president's been in office for two. Why do we need to see the four before that unless there are maybe some political motivations, too, uh-huh. that we're not talking yeah. about? I'll talk about them. Um, there are political motivations here. Sure. Do you think uh, that'll square? I mean, I think if the president had come out in 2015 and said, my taxes are none of your damn business. I am never going to release my taxes. I'm an American citizen. I have a right to keep them private. You are never going to see them. He wouldn't have lost a single vote, and he wouldn't have the problem he has now. What he did do was lie about it, to say that all of these- Not the the crime, it's the cover-up. Yeah, exactly. He said all of these are under audit. Well, that's not possible. The standard that people have been doing over, I don't know, the last decade or so is 10 or 12 years. It is just not possible that all 12 of the individual returns over the last 12 years, they may have all been audited, but they can't still be under audit. And so he lied about it. And now he's getting nailed by his own lie. And again, I think if he had come out and told the truth at the beginning, which is it's none of your business, this would be a wholly different thing. But we're going to find out quickly without revealing anything about uh, his personal life or his taxes or his financial situation that he's not under audit. And that is the opening for the Democrats to say, well, why would he lie about this? Now, this is a political conversation, not a legal one. If there's something you're hiding, you lie. We want to know what you're hiding. And that's something I think people get. Well, the legal conversation goes, if you lie about something, you're in bigger trouble. <laughs> well, and, 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 and... Depending on if an oath is involved. Again. Yeah, and that's... There, <laughs> therein lies the difference between politics and the law. <laughs> there are some overlaps, but not a lot. Right. So while well, talking about uh, one legal aspect of this, uh, the, the next subsection of that part of the law, you'll find that the president of the United States can request, can also request any taxpayers information. So unlike the congressional committee chairs, the president has to state a reason when he does this. Um, should that worry Democrats? Is that a fight that could also backfire? I don't think so. Um, I think anyone who's sitting in office who's you know, has got a tax problem that they're hiding. I don't mind uh, the president outing them. Uh, they got no reason to be in Congress. I think most of the Democrats uh, have either pledged that are running for president have either pledged to release their taxes, have already released them. You answered my next question, um, except for one. But I said the Democrats. The the other one isn't a Democrat, so that's that's okay. Uh, but I think by time of the first debate, 
anyone standing on that stage will have released their tax returns. And that's a good thing. Okay, I think most of I, I know there was at least an article about how all the the women at least had had released them, or at least a, a lot of them, including uh, Klobuchar and I believe Warren, and also uh, Senator Harris and and Gillibrand. And, and Gillibrand. Uh, but I hadn't heard of any of the the men folk if they had released theirs yet or not. But you're saying they most of them have. I know I, I have or most either, of them will by have, the have, pledged have pledged to, to, to release it, and I think. I, you know, as a political strategist, I wouldn't let my candidate go out on the stage on the first debate having not released it because there's no answer. For Is that it. right? Okay. There's there's absolutely no good answer except for the answer Donald Trump should have used. Will that answer but, still work? You think you think somebody will try that one this go around? I don't think any of them have the have the kind of backstory that Trump had. You know, Trump was I'm not releasing it because I'm a big, big businessman. I'm a billionaire. And there's sensitive stuff in this. I think the the big issue among the Democrats running and the embarrassment will be how poor they are. We'll see when we get a look at the tax returns. All right. At the end of last week, after several days of intense controversy over physical contact that some women said was unwanted and made them uncomfortable, potential presidential candidate and former Vice President Joe Biden posted a video saying that he would be more mindful of personal space. And that was after Speaker Nancy Pelosi said Biden's conduct was not disqualifying, suggested that Biden should join the straight arm club, as she called it, which sounds brilliant. Just pretend you and I have a cold, she said. So what do you think, Joe? Should the vice president listen to the speaker's advice? I think it's going to be hard for the vice president, but I think the video showed you how seriously he's taking the issue. There's multiple pieces to this, so I want to sort of there are. T- take a minute. And on multiple this. videos now. Too. Yeah, multiple videos. Uh, so let me go with Biden first, and then what I think is the bigger issue. I think the Biden camp initially underestimated how big a deal this was, but within four days got it right. And the, they did what was the best thing, which is use the the best asset you have, your candidate talking to the camera, unscripted, here's what I'm going to say. And you, trust me, you don't script Joe Biden. You could have written something, and he's not even going to look at it. He's going to tell you what he thinks. Um, so I think that he has addressed this in a way. I think it's hard for him um, on a couple levels because he doesn't he, – he believes that it's part of – his um, showing that he cares about people to be physical with them. But I think, you know, I think the last month or so has taught him that people don't always appreciate that. Is that a, you know, serious character flaw? I don't think so. But how he responds going forward, I think, you know, is a test. I had an argument with someone this week um, who was on television calling it a crisis for Biden. And I said, it's not a crisis, it's a test. And it'll become a crisis if he fails the test. Mm. I think so far he's passed the test. Now, he also made light of it in a speech, and that's Joe Biden. Um, he's going to give you, for every five great things he says, there's going to be a gaffe. Uh, and he's a, a little bit like Trump. He's not someone you can script closely. That is the only comparison I'd make between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. But, I, you know, I think that is a fair uh, comparison. And he's someone who works off of instinct. So, you know, we'll see how he does. And, you know, it really doesn't matter what I think or what you think. Voters will decide. Um, there appears to be a lot of support out there for Biden. But we'll see this. And, you know, uh, presidential campaigns are a series of tests. You fail too many of them, you're out. There's, you know, there's, there's no gentleman C in a presidential campaign. 
The bigger issue, though, is, and I, and I think it's fascinating, we normally look at social change looking backwards. The civil rights movement, we had great perspective on it as legislation was being passed, and we really only fully grasped the changes that were going on in the country looking back in a historical perspective because people didn't know what was going to happen, uh, and it happened over a long period of time. Through whatever combination of this new world of Internet and social media and you know the Me Too movement, we are creating new social norms in real time. We are watching the lines being drawn as they're being drawn. And that is a really good thing because it allows everyone to contribute to it. And, you know, as a as a uh, father of two girls who has four sisters and with many nieces uh, and grandchildren, hopefully coming along the way at some point, if it takes Joe Biden screwing this up to make sure that this sort of behavior, that a woman's right to be comfortable is protected and it isn't you don't get protection until you've surfaced the issue. If that's what it takes, then it's a price worth paying. Um, and it's a price worth paying no matter who the politician is. You know, there's still a lot of debate within the Democratic Party over Al Franken. Al Franken was a very effective senator. I thought a very good guy and I think on the whole a good guy. But it turns out that he had a number of women, eight credible allegations against him, including you know people who worked in the Senate. And that's disqualifying. And it has to be disqualifying to make the change, because if you just give someone a slap on the wrist, it sends the message to the people doing the harassing that, well, I'm going to keep doing it. But when people's lives get blown up, whether it be Harvey Weinstein or Les Moonves, then people know they have to change. And if they don't change, their character career is at risk. Um, so that's more important than at least more important to me than whatever happens to Joe Biden this week. You talked about the support that's out there for Joe Biden right now and, and that there, he's been polling well. There's been a lot of support for him. He has, quote, front runner status. And I was reading a piece earlier this week saying that what's happening to Joe Biden right now is just an inevitable product of this political process that we're going through and trying to pick a Democratic nominee. And he's the front runner. So he this is going to be the narrative that starts to get built around him. And it, it, it happens to be related to this type of conduct because this is where we are right now. But this type of thing would be inevitable for the front runner at this stage of the game. Is that right with your political experience? It, it absolutely is right. We The the best place to be uh, if you want to get breast coverage is someone who has no chance of winning because then you get to say whatever you want and people think you're brave. Who is that right now? Who do you think that is? What friend do I want to lose? <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, I, I will make a historical reference. Then. Okay. Um, and I, I'm trying to remember whether this was, I think it was 1984, 1988, but Bruce... Oh, ba we're out of the 90s. Yeah, we yeah, yeah, there we go. Bruce Babbitt, the former governor of Arizona, was running for president. And my good friend, Mike McCurry, was his press guy. Babbitt got up every day and spoke the truth. And everyone, you know, made such... I mean, they loved him. If it was 84, it would have been Mondale. And we'd get up and say something similar... And they tear it apart, like, how are you going to pay for this? And, you know, and all this stuff. And if you don't have a chance of winning, uh, you don't get vetted. And there's a little bit of Donald Trump in this. People didn't vet him as soon as they might have because they thought, 
he's he's just a crazy whack job, you know, and he's he's entertaining and you know, let's keep pushing him because people like to watch him. So there is an inevitability about that. And if you're looking for a silver lining for Biden, this was an an, an interesting uh, case study where you know, Joe Biden has all these deep relationships with people in the Democratic Party. There's no one who's been in the party who's an activist who Joe Biden hasn't done some kindness for in the over the last 50 years. And this allowed everyone to come out of the woodwork. You can't not look at any magazine, any newspaper, any Twitter feed without some, and in this case, some woman saying, this is what Joe Biden did for me and my family at this time. So as, a, as an attack, um, you'd rather never get attacked. But as the front runner you're going to, this isn't the worst because it did allow him to surface the character issue in a way that highlighted the best part of his character. And if he gets the nomination, that's he's going to run on the fact that America can only leave when we're true to our values and our character, and the current president does neither. Um, so, you know, again, it's a little bit of a silver lining in an otherwise stormy week. All right, Joe. Well, that is all we have for you for this week. We will both be back next week now that you are officially on board and uh, looking forward to it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And finally, 51 years ago, last week on April 3rd, 1968, the night before he planned to lead a march protesting the treatment of sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave one of the most moving, most poignant, and most important speeches in American history. Sadly and tragically, it was his last. Dr. King explained why he had come to Memphis. Quote, The issue is injustice. The issue is the refusal of Memphis to be fair and honest in its dealings with its public servants, who happen to be sanitation workers. Quote, As he had done throughout his career, Dr. King cited the words of America's founders and held us as a country accountable for those words. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country. Maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. And so just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Dr. King understood the importance of holding America and Americans accountable for our founding promises. He firmly believed we were exceptional as a country, but that exceptionalism was dependent on how faithfully we honored those founding commitments. Dr. King told of the long and difficult struggle ahead, 
He knew the dangers, but he also had a deep faith that justice would prevail. So this week, we give Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. the final word. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.